Uh, we are on a journey through the Gospel of John. We made it to John chapter 9. Uh, that's where we'll be this morning. Just a quick note, if you don't have a copy of God's Word and you want one, there should be one under the seat around you. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. So nobody's going to like tackle you if we see you walking out of here with one of those Bibles. We want you to have a copy of God's Word, so I uh, just want to mention that as well. Um, you may have noticed a couple of things uh, on the campus changing uh, week after week. Uh, this week, um, you might have noticed how like all the grass is mowed and weed-eated. Um, I want to thank all those who came out for the workday yesterday to put in the hard work. Ken, thanks for leading that, putting that together. All who came out to trim trees, weed eat, mow, just get the campus looking nice as we go into winter. Um, Graham does a great job of mowing, uh, but this is a big place, and with all the construction, it just takes a lot of work to get this place looking good. So thank you. Um, you may have also noticed, if you've been in one of the kids' spaces, uh, the new camera's up. And so just a real quick note on that. Um, that is part of our new building uh, project we set out this year with in, conj- in conjunction with the new building to install cameras around the campus. And while like, that's super helpful for things like theft and vandalism, the primary heart behind that really is just safety and accountability for the next generation, for our kids' ministry and our student ministry. So uh, when we open the new space, all the wiring is in. So every ministry space here will be covered by a camera uh, going forward. And so just want to let you know that in case you see a camera up that wasn't there last week. That was planned out and has been part of the process. So safety team, super thankful for them and all the hard work that they've done to, to plan and organize that. So just want to mention those two things and get ready because week after week, you're going to start seeing a lot more changes happening on the campus as we get closer and closer to opening uh, the new worship center and the new commons area. So more on that to come. We are again in the Gospel of John. So last week we covered uh, one of the miraculous healings that that Jesus performed where there was a man who was blind from birth and, uh, and Jesus heals him. And the question asked by the disciples uh, to Jesus before he even healed the man was really a question about why this man was born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus, was this man blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus responded to the guys, neither. It is for the glory of God that his works might be displayed that this man was born blind. So then what happens after that now is there's some interrogating happening. We're going to pick the story back up today, kind of in the wake of that healing all the different things that are happening now. Uh, And it's gonna take us this Sunday and next Sunday to finish John chapter nine. We're gonna pick this back up in verse 18. The title of the sermon today is this, The Cost of Following Jesus. Now, the grace, the mercy, our salvation is a free gift from God given to us by faith. And at the same time, uh, Jesus himself calls us to consider the cost of following him. So we're going to talk about that today. Is there a cost associated with following Jesus? If so, what is that cost? And then as with anything else in life, if, if we endure that cost, if we incur that cost, what is the reward, right? What is the benefit, right? Nothing in life is free. You've probably heard that phrase, right? Your grandparents probably taught you that phrase. Maybe your parents taught you that phrase. The only exception would be the grace and the forgiveness of God. But if it costs us something, what is it that we gain in return? So we're going to pick this up in verse 18 of John 9. So the Jews did not believe that he, the blind man, or had been blind and had received his sight 
until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So they've already began interrogating the crowd and the neighbors and the witnesses, and they're not believing that this was the man born blind until what? Until they bring the parents in. So verse uh, 19, and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? So three questions, parents of the blind man. First of all, is this your son? Because remember last week there was some dispute, right? Those who didn't believe he had been healed are like, that's gotta be somebody else. And so the neighbors were all disputing whether or not this was actually the man born blind. First question to the parents, is this your son? And was he born blind? Two questions. The third question is what? How then does he see? So his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So the first question is, is this your son? They say, yes, that's our son. Second question is, was he really born blind? The parents answer, yeah, like he was born blind. We've been there every minute of every day since the day he was born, making sure he had what he needed. Yes, he was born blind. But the third question, how does he see? Verse 21, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. So the parents have no issue validating, yeah, that's our son. Yes, he was born blind, but they know that something is at stake if they, if they answer the next question and they point to Jesus and say, he healed him. So they, they, they cop out, right? They back out and say, we don't know. Tell you what, he's gonna have to answer that question for himself. Now we already know that even the neighbors knew that Jesus was the one involved in healing him, right? I mean, they were disputing that last week earlier on in this passage. So the parents for sure knew, like imagine being the parents. Your child has just been healed of blindness. And, and this, the, the, the person being healed is referred to as a man. So we would assume he's probably in his upper teens, maybe his 20s, maybe even older than that. And so there's no doubt that as soon as he is healed, everybody's talking about it, right? Like everybody is talking about it and everybody is talking about how it happened. And it was this man, Jesus. But the parents are saying what? We're not gonna answer that question. Why don't you ask him? He is of age. Verse 22 tells us why they were hesitant to answer this question. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. So now we understand what's going on, right? First of all, they're scared. That's the reason why they didn't answer the third question. They were afraid of what the Jews were gonna do because there was already an understanding among the Jews. If anybody labels this man the Messiah, the Christ, he will be what? Excommunicated from the Jewish faith. Like that's what it means to be put out of the synagogue. Excommunicated, right? So for the parents, they were really concerned about what would happen to them if they pointed to Jesus and said Jesus was the one who healed this man. So they, they cop out and they make this, their son speak for himself. Now what we learn about our faith as Christians is that we are called to live a public faith. To live our faith in public. 
The faith that saves us, the faith that regenerates us, the faith that, that washes over us with grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation and acceptance into God's kingdom is in fact a public faith. It's not a faith to be kept in the closet, to be kept in secret, to be kept in incognito, but it is a public faith. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. And what a powerful promise. Jesus is promising to speak on your behalf before heaven, before the angels. If any one of you, and me included, if we acknowledge Jesus publicly, he will what? He will acknowledge you. He will speak on your behalf. He'll say, I know that one. That one's mine. That one is spoken for. But this comes with a warning, verse nine, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So that's a pretty serious, pretty serious business, isn't it? To deny Jesus, to not publicly acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. One of the beautiful things about our faith is baptism. You know, this is what baptism is. It is the public declaration of your faith. This is designed by God. It's not, it's not something designed by the church. Jesus himself sets the pattern for baptism, doesn't he? When he goes out to the Jordan in public, right, this amazing public declaration, he is the son of God, he's baptized, comes up out of the water, and God speaks from heaven. And what does God say? That's my son. That one's mine. In him I am well pleased. So when we, as Jesus' followers, are baptized, we're making this public declaration of our faith in Jesus, and through baptism, God is publicly declaring that we belong to him. Like our, just our, our, like the, the expression of baptism reminds us that our faith is to be a public faith. I think about the baptism in Acts chapter two. This is the launch of the church. Peter's there, he's preaching the gospel just boldly in front of all these different people and all these different languages. And then in Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a powerful public declaration of faith in Jesus before all of Jerusalem. Like it's exciting and powerful when one person is baptized and declares their faith. 3,000 people in the city of Jerusalem declaring their faith in one day that Jesus is the Messiah. Our faith in Jesus is meant to be a public faith, listen to this, regardless of the cost. Because see, it's the cost associated that is causing the parents to do what? To back up, to not want to acknowledge Jesus. And so they're afraid. We'll pick this up in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now keep in mind, this man has already answered this question in this chapter. From last week, he answered it before the neighbors, the townspeople were all asking, how did you receive your sight? And he explains, Jesus spit in the mud, he put the mud on my eyes, he told me to go bathe, I came back seeing. 
the, the Pharisees have already interrogated him. And so now they're asking him again to repeat, how did he open your eyes then? And so he answers in verse 27. I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now, this is a pretty bold step. On one hand, this man is acknowledging already, what? That he's considering himself one of Jesus' disciples, right? And I don't know that he fully understands who Jesus is. Like, this is fresh, just eyes open, seeing the world for the first time. And he's, he's acknowledging the man who is responsible for this. He's got to be from God. Like, only somebody from God could do something so powerful. And he's already thinking of himself as one of Jesus' disciples. And then he turns to the Pharisees and says, oh, do you guys want in on this too? Are you asking again? Because you want to be one of his disciples. What a gutsy move. Because keep in mind, one man going toe-to-toe with, with, the, with the elite religious leaders of the day, like a whole panel of them. This guy has not been to seminary. He obviously doesn't read and write. He's been blind. No education. Like his only existence has been hoping that somebody would toss him a coin or, or toss him a crumb of bread so he could have something to eat to make it to the next day. Right? So he has not been to seminary, never read the scriptures, and he's going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees here. What a bold move. What a powerful expression of faith. As you can imagine, this does not set well with the Pharisees. Verse 28, and they reviled him. It's a fancy word for saying they were angry. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple but we are disciples of Moses. Now you need to hear this in a lecturing tone of voice. You gotta think that's exactly what they're doing here. You're one of his disciples. Well, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses for as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. That's interesting because they're appealing to the scriptures to deny the one who wrote the scriptures. If you think about that. They're appealing to Moses. They're saying, listen, don't question. Who are you to question us? We're disciples of Moses. Have you, have you read the Bible? Oh, of course you haven't because you're blind. Or you were blind. So you've never read it, but we've read it. We are followers of Moses. God spoke to Moses and they're saying this to what? To deny the fact that the one who wrote the scriptures is actually the Christ. And so here they are appealing to Moses. Verse 30, the man answers And he says, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone who opens the eyes of a man born blind, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What a fabulous, articulate, bold answer this man just gave to the religious leaders. Like, these aren't his buddies. These are the very men who can make the decision to excommunicate him from the church. If he wasn't an outcast before for being blind, he could be an outcast going forward. To where if anybody associates with him, gives money to him, right, befriends him, they would be considered 
unclean themselves. And so he gives an eloquent response and he simply says this. Guys, you can't deny it's an amazing thing, a miraculous thing, a powerful thing, right? I was blind and I've been healed by this man. How in the world can this man be a sinner? God doesn't do powerful things through sinners. This man must be from God. And then verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Essentially what they say to the man, are you, are you kidding me? You're gonna lecture us? A sinner like you? So, such a bad sinner that God would give you blindness from birth, and you're gonna lecture us, the religious elite. And so rather than hearing what he had to say, they pull their self-righteous card and they excommunicate him from the church and kick him out of the Jewish faith, which was part of the society and culture. So essentially, they've branded him an outcast, the same as being a Gentile, unclean, not worthy to be called the people of God. You're out of here. Now, Jesus has a conversation with some of his followers about the cost associated with following him and acknowledging him publicly. And Luke captures this in the Gospel of Luke in Luke 14. And what Jesus is describing in Luke 14 is actually happening here in John chapter 9. I want to read some verses from Luke 14, and then we're going to talk about how it applies to what just happened. So in Luke 14, there's this, this large crowd gathered, starting at verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Man, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? If anybody doesn't hate their mother and father and brother and sister, even their own life, he cannot be my disciple. Then he's going to give two illustrations on what he means. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross can and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. So that's the illustration to explain. Jesus said, like, what kind of a person would set out to build a huge tower and not first count the cost? Like, who wants to be halfway through a building project and go, you know what, I didn't, I didn't even think about how much this is going to cost. We're going to have to stop. Why? He would be mocked by the people. Then he gives a second illustration. Or, verse 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Right? What king would not stop and say, okay, before we go into war, let's think about this. How many men do we have? How, much are, like, how many spears do we have? How many swords do we have? How many horses do we have? How many chariots do we have? How many does the enemy have? Like what king going into war wouldn't first do what? Calculate the cost. What's it going to take to win? And if not, while the other, the other king is yet a far way off, 
he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And then he tells us in verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now in this teaching, Jesus is explaining the cost associated with being his disciple, somebody who publicly follows Jesus. And he lets us know this may cost you something. It may cost you your relationship with your parents, your siblings, your friends. It may actually cost you your very life. And if you're not ready to give those things up, you're not ready to be my disciple. I was speaking to a group of teenagers uh, about a week and a half ago about uh, making Jesus your, your one thing in life, your one treasure, your first love. And I told this group of teenagers, that, hey, here's the deal. I want you to love Jesus more than you love your parents. Whew. And I said, I want you to go tell your parents I told you that. And they're like, oh. I said, because here's why. If you will love Jesus more than you love your parents, you will be compelled to obey him. And guess what he's gonna command you to do? Honor and love your parents. I said, you'll actually honor and love your parents better by loving him more. And then I flipped the script on him. I said, it's like in my marriage, right? So I, I love my wife. She loves me. But, but my wife loves Jesus more than she loves me. And the little girl in the front row was like, oh, how sad. I was like, no, 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 listen. Because she loves Jesus more, she loves me better. Because if she loved me more, she would only love me when I'm worthy of that love. That's about 10% of the time. Maybe less than that. But because she loves Jesus more, he commands her to love me sacrificially even when I don't deserve it. She loves me better because she loves him more and vice versa. I love her, but it doesn't mean I love her all the time in my own strength, but because I love Jesus with all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, everything that I am, when he commands me to love her better than I could love her in my own strength. You see how that works? This is what Jesus is talking about, Luke 14. saying, if you're not willing to break allegiance with the most valuable things in life, even your relationship with your parents, your brothers, your sisters, if you're not ready to let all those things go to come follow me, you're not ready to be my disciple. So this is what's going on in John chapter nine. The blind man has already began to lose his relationships with the neighbors and friends. We saw that last week, right? They're disputing. They're arguing about whether or not this is actually the guy that used to be their friend that used to be blind. They're like, I think he was. And so I'm like, no, I can't be him. And so he's already beginning to lose those relationships. And now what's happening with his parents? They're beginning to wring their hands of him as well. If he publicly acknowledges Jesus as his healer, as his, as his, as his, as his rabbi, as the one who he wants to follow, then what's gonna happen? He's, every relationship is at stake for him. As he's excommunicated out of the Jewish faith, he's being excommunicated out of all those relationships. Everybody has to disown him. And so we see what Jesus is teaching in Luke 14 unfolding here in John chapter nine. Are you willing to be rejected by the world in order to be accepted by Jesus? You see this in the world today, in the church today, and it's probably been true of the church since the church began, that there's this desire among Christ's followers to want to hold on to Jesus, to hold tightly to faith in Jesus, while also holding tightly to acceptance in the world. It's the reason why we aren't more bold with our faith. 
It's the reason why we oftentimes are more like the parents, shrinking back when things get intimidating and not speaking up, right, for our faith in Jesus. Love Jesus in rooms like this, where everybody loves Jesus, and it's easy to talk about Jesus, and we can drop the name Jesus about three or four times, and everybody's high-fiving, but when we get out into the world, like, it's, do you really believe it? Is he really your savior? Is he really your Lord? Because that's when your faith is put to the test. Will you publicly stand for Jesus? Or will you allow your fear of being rejected by the world keep you from being a bold follower of him? It's like we want just enough of Jesus to be secure and happy and to make sure we know where we're going when we die but not enough of him to be uncomfortable, to be called to sacrifice, to be called even if it costs us our reputation to follow him. The Apostle Paul, probably one of the easiest examples in the scripture of somebody who gave up everything to follow Jesus. And in, uh, in Acts chapter 20, uh, he's getting ready to, to head back to Jerusalem before he's finally arrested in Rome. And he says some really interesting things there in Acts chapter 20. In verse 22, he says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm getting ready to go. Constrained by the Spirit. That means the Spirit won't let me go anywhere else. Holy Spirit of God is calling me to go to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's Paul saying, the Holy Spirit has told me to go to Jerusalem, compelling me. I can't go anywhere else. And I don't know what all is going to happen in Jerusalem, but I, I know this. The Holy Spirit has testified to me that every city I go into, imprisonment and affliction await me. So I don't know what I'm going to eat. I don't know where I'm going to stay. I don't know if anybody's going to listen to the message I have to preach, but I know this is going to happen. I'm going to get in prison, and I'm going to be afflicted. Those two things are guaranteed to me by the Holy Spirit. And look at what he says. Verse 24. But I do not count, account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to follow him all the way to Jerusalem. I know that I'm gonna be in prison. I know that I'm gonna face affliction, but listen, I'm going anyway. Even if it costs me my life, I'm going. I want to be more like that. I want to be more like Paul. So convinced in who Jesus is that nothing else matters. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what's at stake for following Jesus? What's the potential cost? Could potentially cost you some really important relationships. Not everybody's gonna get it. Okay, they're not. It may cost you some friendships, maybe even some family relationships. It may cost you more than that. It may cost you some persecution, some suffering. It may even cost you your own life. 
So, so what is the potential cost associated with following Jesus? According to Paul, everything. Everything. I gave up everything. What did he gain? What was the gain? One answer, Christ. I gave up everything that I might attain him. Not all the blessings that flow from knowing him, not everything that comes in this package of salvation, of forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and acceptance, all these good things. Paul's saying, just having Jesus is enough. Enough for me to be willing to let go of everything else that formerly held value in my heart. I gave it all up because Jesus meant that much to me. Now here's the good news of the gospel. Everything else in life that costs you something, you have to pay for it up front and then you get a benefit. You work hard, you get a paycheck, right? That's, that's the idea of cost, cost analysis. What are you gonna get? That's not the gospel. Because see, you get everything up front with Jesus, right? That's our salvation for free. That's grace by faith. That gift of salvation given to you for free and then the cost comes, So Jesus gives you the goods, he gives you himself. And so in in receiving Christ, you know the value and the treasure that he is. And there's this willingness now to do what? To say, this is so good. What I have in Christ is so good, I am willing to let go of anything else that it might cost me. Now, is there a guarantee that you're gonna lose all your important relationships? No. But that's not the point. The point is that you and I would hold Jesus so dearly that we let go of our allegiance to all these other things. We'll put the results in his hands. Maybe through your bold faith and your passionate love for Jesus, those other relationships might see something in you that compels them to come to Christ. But I guarantee you this, if we don't stand up for our faith in Christ, they never will. If we shrink back like the parents, they'll never hear about him, much less be compelled to know him and love him. And so I wanna leave with the, us with a few questions, and I'm gonna ask these even of myself. What matters most to you? Think about that. What means most to you? Jesus or your comfort? What matters most to you? Jesus or your stuff, your possessions? What means most to you? Jesus or your political views? I just went there. What means most to you? Jesus or your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your children, maybe your own marriage? What means most to you? Jesus or your reputation? What means most to you? Jesus or your own life? Let me, let me reword it this way. Think about the things in life you're most passionate about. What things or ideas or possessions or people in your life are you more passionate about than you are passionate about Jesus? That might be a way to think about that. Is there anything in your life that you're more passionate about than Jesus himself? It doesn't mean that we don't have other passions, right? It doesn't mean that we don't have other people in our life that we love. My wife and my boys, I love dearly. All I'm saying is I love Jesus more, right? 
And because I love him more, I actually love them better. I'm not telling you, don't be engaged in what's going on politically in the world. Like I think if Jesus is your everything, you'll engage in that better. I'm not saying don't care about your relationship with your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors. Care about those things. Just care about Jesus more so that if it cost you those things, you would still publicly acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I wanna leave you with those um, questions today. And at Solid Rock, we believe that God calls us to walk by faith and to take steps by faith. And so maybe there's something in your life today that God's calling you to, a next step. Maybe for you, it's to take that first step of faith to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If that's you, we want, we want to pray with you before you leave here today. And so at the end of the service, our pastors will be down front. We would love to pray with you. If you're joining us online, I know it's a little more difficult, but if you'll reach out to us, email us through the app, like connect with us and let us know that's the decision you want to make. Like we'll set up a time to talk with you and pray with you about making that decision. Or maybe you already are a Christian and today God is convicting you about taking that public step of proclaiming your faith in Jesus through baptism. So maybe you haven't done that. And so today, God's speaking to you about that and you wanna take that next step. Like you could let us know, the cards in front of you have a next steps card, just put your contact info, baptism. Again, contact us through email or the app. Like we want to meet with you and we wanna be a part of you taking that step of faith. In just a minute, you're actually gonna get to witness a baptism. Somebody taking that step of faith, say I'm publicly acknowledging Jesus as my savior. But before we get there, I wanna ask you, what is God speaking to you? So I wanna pray now before we move to baptism and just pray that God would continue to work in your heart um, and that if there's anything going on that we can be a part of that you would let us know. Let's pray together and then we'll get ready for baptism. Father, we thank you for reminding us today of how valuable Jesus is. And it's not that we don't like Jesus or think that he's important. It's Father, the, the, the issue is that we hold other things more dearly. And the great thing about Loving Jesus with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul as our primary allegiance is that it allows us to engage in everything else in life appropriately. Loving Jesus more than we love our children allows us to be better parents. Loving Jesus more than we love our own spouse compels us to be better husbands and better wives. Loving Jesus more than we, we care about what our friends think about us compels us and empowers us to be better friends. So Father, today is not about um, walking away, turning our back on the world. It's about opening up our hearts and declaring together that Jesus is our treasure and that we're willing to do that no matter what the cost is. Father, we pray for anybody here who has not taken that step of faith, that God, you would draw them to yourself today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.